Welcome back to the Hidden Things and Hidden Things, episode 27? Oh my gosh, we're getting pretty up there. So, that's chapter 18, in the can. What do we have going on there? There's a lot of wings in chapter 18. Uh, we, get to, we get to go flying with the dragon, which is probably my favorite scene, one of my favorite scenes in the book. And uh, we get Vicus's wings in a rather abrupt reveal when he tangles with, with Walker. I got to do that because Vicus was, he was the point of view character for a little bit there because Calliope was knocked down and kind of out of the scene there for a bit. So Vicus gets to rip all the stuff off. And if it had been Calliope watching, I would have had to like spend a lot more time on, hey, there's wings. But I didn't because Vicus already knows all that stuff. So for him, it's completely matter of fact that he's ripping all the stuff off and it's go time. I've had more than one person tell me that that upon reading the scene where he's ripping off his coat and his sweatshirt and stuff and exposing his wings where they're like did i miss a scene where we were informed of the wings do i am i a bad reader and you're not a bad reader it's just kind of a in your face reveal so this is an interesting chapter i think the first half of it for me is really almost a reward for Calliope, for all the crap that she went through, had, you know, went through in the previous chapter or so with her family. That was her growing up moment. And she gets to experience a certain amount of guilt falling away and stress falling away and worry falling away for a little bit there and just, and just be and sing and do something magical. It's, it's kind of a relief after, after beating on her for um, 18 chapters to um, get to a point where, where Maka's got this thing waiting for her. And then there's the singing with the dragon, which is a whole, whole nother thing that we will actually be exploring a little bit in the Little Things short story compilation. There's a, there's a short story in there that features Maka, and we get to talk a little bit about what Calliope singing with the dragon actually meant, um, what it did, or, or a, a sort of a shakeout of that. So Also, there will be bowling. That'll be coming later. You guys have that to look forward to, but for right now. Yeah, it was just kind of an important thing. When you've got somebody whose sort of thing for the purposes of the story is her singing, having her singing and sort of bonding with this dragon is kind of a big deal. Somebody had a makeover. And basically, Vicus looks at Calliope and can just see that stuff has changed. You know, I didn't mean the clothing, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I didn't mean the clothes. And it's, you know, it's visible. It's the kind of thing where, you know, she's been carrying around something. Actually, you know what? Vicus says something like this earlier in the book. When he, when he loses his debt to Walker and doesn't realize it, and he, he thinks about it later, like this pain that you've, this headache that you've had for so long that you don't even realize it's gone until somebody asks you that it's not there. And, and this is sort of like that in a lot of ways for Calliope. This is like that. She's been carrying around this thing between her and her family. And the pain isn't completely gone, but it's definitely boiled down a little bit it wasn't her entire family rejecting her it was one you know one 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 monkey wrench in the gears you know there's a lot of reconciliation that went on there so she's she's more at peace and i guess if you're not carrying that weight anymore you walk different and vikas can see that or he's got special grief vision and he can see that she's got less of it i don't know her aura is cleansed even for this i'm not going to write auras into into things anyway at the time that I was writing this scene and, and revising the scene, I was wrestling with my first sort of pathetic understanding of what is or isn't magical realism. I'm going to cut to the end and, and say something really quick. Uh, the conclusion is that nobody really knows what the hell makes up magical realism or not. It, it you know, it's kind of like good pie. It, it's 
it's good pie if you believe that it's good pie. That's not entirely true, but it's not a strict enough literary term to have any kind of literary critical weight to it. So it is or isn't what it is. But one of the things that I came away with in studying it and doing some reading and reading of good examples of it, things of that nature, and things that people had sort of identified as the new magical realism, stuff that wasn't directly related to Latin America and that sort of thing, like Neil Gaiman or whatever, which of course I've been reading already. The takeaway from that was that you don't talk about the rules. Going in and tearing out the guts of a thing to figure out how the magic works in that particular genre makes the magic not magical anymore. And I, I kind of had that feeling to a certain extent with a lot of fantasy, sort of what I think of as, you know, sort of straight classical fantasy literature. Tolkien gets around this a little bit when he talks about his magic. The way he introduces magical elements into his stories is equivocal. He's never out, he never outright says that anything is magic, or very, very rarely does he do that. The ring makes Frodo invisible, yes, but he equivocates in the wording of how the magic happens. So if Gandalf does something and then he makes something happen, it's not, I did this and boom, there was a flash of light and this rock cracked, which is what you tend to see in sort of the film adaptations and stuff like that. It's much more obvious. It kind of has to be for that situation. But in the books, it's this and then such and such happened as though he had summoned it up. You know, a wind sprang up as though, he, as though it came to his call. That isn't to say Tolkien's a good example of this. It isn't. But it's a, it's a way of approaching the magic that makes it... People think of Tolkien as being sort of straight fireballs D&D magic. And it really, really, really triple underline is not. But you do get a lot of what I think of as epic fantasy after that, after that point that ends up being a lot like that. You know, you're Terry Goodkinds and in that era, maybe had been writing science fiction and stuff like that. And world building when you're going into science fiction is very, can be very different than what you're doing with, with fantasy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it differently. With science fiction stuff, you really want to get into the guts of a thing and talk about why it works. Because part of the reason that you're talking about is because of the science. You want to... Um, to my mind, the best definition I've ever heard of science fiction is it's a story that doesn't work without some sort of scientific element. If you can take the scientific elements out and the story continues to chug along with, without a hitch, it's not really science fiction. It's a story with science fiction trappings. If it's predicated on this, you know, idea, um, the easy example is like Asimov's robot stories or anything like that. The whole Every single one of them hinges on like, well, here's the premise with these rules. And now we're going to play with what those rules would, would do in the real world. You need that. You need that tech. In that case, it's not even so much a scientific concept as much as it is a logical construct. And you're going to push various pieces in on this puzzle and, and see what other pieces pop out the other side. Science fiction works like that. And I think maybe some of the people, Jack Vance, to my mind, is, is definitely one of them. Larry Niven really kind of approach their fantasy a little bit how you how I would think of approaching science fiction. I'm writing a science fiction right story right now. So I get into the guts of stuff. I look things up. I want I want it to pass the Neil deGrasse Tyson didn't roll his eyes too many times when he read it test. I wouldn't do that with fantasy, partly because I don't need to I don't feel the need to write an epic fantasy type of thing where all the laws and rules and how the magic works are all laid out. Brandon Sanderson is doing that and he's doing a fine job of it and I really don't think anybody else needs to. A lot of people get into that trap where they, they get in that sort of science, science fiction mindset when they're writing fantasy where they feel like they need to explain everything in order to world build. And I don't think that's necessarily true. You get lots of people who have done it other ways where a lot can be implied with a few short lines. It's almost a short story style. The magical world builds up in the sketchy kind of language that goes out that direction. Tip of the hat to Neil Gaiman. He does a wonderful job with that sort of thing. 
in my mind, before I ran into the term magical realism, which ironically was, I first ran into in reference to Neil Gaiman, I had divided these two styles of sort of magic and fantasy into that sort of epic fantasy. And then what I thought of as sort of fairy tale fantasy, where nobody looks really too close at the magic. If you're dealing with fairies in the modern world and somebody says, well, why does iron burn you? That everyone, you know, they're going to kind of roll their eyes and say, it burns us. What, what difference does it make? Why? It does. Uh, we'd like it not to. So can we please not ride in the car, in the rusty car, please? You know, whatever. And then this, this term came along and sort of hit me broadside and I got to thinking about it. But one of, the, one of the sort of codified definitions of this sort of thing is that you don't, the people who live right in the guts of the weird stuff don't really think about why the weird stuff is weird or what the rules for it are or anything like that. And part of what makes that stuff not special anymore is, is examining it too close. So I took that and to a certain extent, that's a lot of the reason why Vicus doesn't over explain a lot of the stuff is because he sort of ascribes to that. Part of this goes back to the whole hidden things theme. I like playing with my readers, not playing with my readers in the sense of a cat and a mouse, but I like playing imaginatively along with my readers as opposed to performing for them 100%. And this probably goes back to my gaming background. I like when there's a bunch of people at the table and we're playing something, if other people are contributing to the creative space that we're working in, that's the best time for me. And a lot of the disappointment that I've had in certain stories that I've really, really, really loved is like, say, I, I, I had one, <laughs> I, I'll get, I can give you a, a pop culture modern reference for this in a second, but my example is you have like this first story and the author throws a bunch of stuff out there that's sort of throwaway stuff, but seems to be sort of with just sort of flung handfuls of paint sort of paints a very abstract picture of the world around it and leaves the rest of it to your own imagination to fill in. So you make some guesses about it. If you like that story and they think the story is cool, then those ideas that you come with are probably also going to be cool. And they're certainly going to be what's really cool to you. And then the second or third book comes along and we finally get to the point where the author feels like, or he needs this material or whatever. And he goes to that space that he sort of flung paint at and sort of sketched out. And now he spend some time there and we get it defined and it's not a what you came up with and b sort of inevitably it's not as cool as what you thought it was going to be best example i can think of this in the last decade or so is the matrix the first matrix implies a lot of stuff outside of what we see in that first movie and that movie is freaking awesome and i feel like i don't actually think the second two movies are terrible i think that a lot of the public and viewer disappointment in the second and third movies came from the fact that the creators put in hard definitions and hard images of what was going on in the rest of the world. And it wasn't as cool as what their viewers had come up with in their own heads after watching the first movie. Some people might look at it and say, well, that's just you being lazy. You don't want to make it up. You're sort of half implying it, letting the reader come up with stuff. Yeah, I guess if you want to say that. The fact of the matter is I know in my head the answer to every single reason why all this stuff works. I just don't like talking about it because I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint whoever I tell the answers to. I don't think that there is one answer. I think that there are at least two answers. I think there's an answer that's true in the hidden lands. And I think there's an answer that's true where Calliope is from, whatever you want to call it, the real world or whatever. Dragons are still there. Dragons are still grabbing people. So they must have rules that make them work there. So maybe that's the whole hydrogen for blood, lighter than air, blah, 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 blah. And then there's some other thing where there's something else entirely. That's true elsewhere. Two things can be true at the same time about the same thing that are theoretically con contradictory. I mean, we've seen that 
any number of times in this story, and and it's been implied a lot more. So maybe Vicus doesn't know. Maybe Vicus doesn't want to know. Maybe he can't just give one answer. I have my favorite pet theories. Anything I write will be coming from that space. Like that's what's informing it. But I don't need to say it. I don't think it matters. My editor has been referring to Vicus as my favorite demon clown for years now. There's no point in me saying he's not a demon. But you know, it doesn't matter. That's how she parses it. And that's, that's the most cool thing for her. So go ahead. Just take the basics. Shaped like a man. White. Wings on the back. Angel. Right? Except now skin is leathery. Shark tooth smile. Face is weird. Hair is like these spiky growths that aren't really actually hair. They're more like rhinoceros horns. You know, the wings are more like bat wings, except they're all torn and tattered and, and wouldn't ever actually work for flying. He's got claws for feet. He's got claws for hands. So he's not... Your first glance is this, and then you realize how much it is not that, and that makes it almost, you know, worse, there being this sort of superficial comparison. And maybe that's because he used to be a lot closer to an angel and gave stuff up. Maybe that's because he is a demon. Maybe I could be wrong. I've had lots of people tell me that I'm wrong about stuff in my book. People have been telling me that I've been wrong about the gender of the dragon for literally since the first draft, halfway through the first draft was completed. So, I mean, we're well on to... 12 years of people telling me that I'm wrong about some of the stuff that I wrote in my book that I believe I'm, I mean, who else is going to be right? So I might be wrong about Vikas too. I don't know. Maybe he'll tell me later in another book. I've had people tell me, I, I can go and dig up the review if you want, that some of the stuff in this story is a clear retelling with the serial numbers not even particularly well filed off of some book I've never read, or an author that I have never read, like entirely, like anything. Which I think is, you know, it's, it's fine, I guess, if it reminds you of that. And, and it was a poor imitation. Well, it's going to be a poor imitation when I'm not actually, you know, imitating it. And I'm not going to say that there aren't call-outs. Somebody used to tell me War of the Oaks by Emma Bull all the time. And I've never read that book either. People always say that. It was only like six stories or whatever. I am handing this down as a rule with fantasy stories. You cannot put a dragon in a story without it meaning something. I'm uttering those words both as an admonition and and an order to people who are writing stories, but I think also as an observation of an unavoidable fact that you have to deal with whether you want to or not. You can't put a dragon into a story without it meaning something about the story, without it implying something about the world, because dragons are, for better or worse, seminal, pivotal, like lightning rod elements of a fantasy story. And there's lots of fantasy stories without dragons, but you put a dragon in, a dragon cannot be unimportant. Even if it's a dumb, mute, metal-eating beast that's essentially a cow that can breathe fire, like it is in the um, Name of the Wind stuff by uh, Patrick Rothfuss, it's still this epic creature that's very difficult to stop, and it, it has all these things built into it, and it's basically a treasure trove of all this stuff. It's as close to a natural creature as you could write for something like that. But at the same time, it also explains in this gestalt being a huge chunk of how the world works, the alchemy of it and all this other kind of stuff. Tolkien's dragon says something about the world. Evil is smart. Evil is probably smarter than you. Evil has the upper hand And you can't stand toe-to-toe with evil. You can outwill it. You can be stronger than it in your heart, I think Tolkien would say, in your soul. But you can't punch it to death. It just 
isn't going to work. It's a thing that is outlasted. It's a very British thing. Obviously, all this was written before World War II, but it strikes me as the sort of mindset of surviving the bombing in London during World War II, the whole blitz and everything like that. You don't punch evil out in that situation. You outlast it. It's a very, I mean, the whole thing where they survived the blitz, that is the most hobbit thing you will ever see British do in recent history. So that says something. Evil is cunning. Evil is sentient because the dragons are that and they, they embody that. You think of a story that a dragon is in. It doesn't matter if it's a dumb creature, if it's a beast of burden, if it's the classic treasure hoarding thing. I read somebody had done a, this sort of world setting that I really kind of thought was adorable and fun where people were literally farming dragons, like they were keeping them and feeding them and stuff because their excrement was the gold. Like the reason that they had piles of gold was because they're filthy, filthy, filthy creatures and sleep on piles of their own shit. And people farm dragons because that way they get to take all their gold and, and you know, everybody, that, and that says something about what the world is going to be like. Um, if there are dragons in Discworld, they probably say something about the world. I don't think there are dragons in Discworld. So you can go around and around and around and around and around like this. They all matter. You cannot put a dragon in and have it not matter, even if it's just basically a gigantic cat. That says something. You know, in this case, what does the dragon mean? And you got to kind of think about that. I didn't really think about that when I was writing it, obviously going through first draft, but you do think about it afterwards because you can't have it be nothing. A lot of people will tell me that Maka is their favorite character. They don't like being reminded of the fact that Maka's in less than one third of the book. Maka packs a lot of personality into things like, it would be an honor if you wanted to travel with us more. And there's a long pause and he says, yes. Because that's true. And why lie about it and why embellish it? Obviously that's true. So I acknowledge that you are smart enough to see that it would be an honor for you. Well done, infinitesimally lesser creature. Which I mean is a compliment because the fact that I could even perceive you is a credit to your species. In this, the dragon is nobility. To a certain extent, the dragon is arrogance. The dragon is a force of nature that cannot be tamed, can be destroyed. So the dragon is earth to a certain extent. That's what Maka means in certain Native American languages. When he says, use this name, this is a name that the people in this area used to call me once upon a time. That's what Maka means is earth. There's only one reader that's ever contacted me that caught that. Tip of the hat to Edie, who's also one of our uh, Kickstarter funders. When Josh says, you need to stay close to the earth, he doesn't mean the ground necessarily, or he may not just mean the ground, because everything means two things. So yeah, there's a lot packed into Maka. And there's a lot of people like, I'd love to have a book just about Maka. Mm, that would be tough. And I don't know that it would necessarily be good because there's a lot of shine that comes off that coin if you handle it too much. That's my thing on dragons. Can't ignore how important it is. In fact, everything in whatever this current plot line is, the A plot or the B plot, but everything boils down to the dragon in this next chapter that we're going to talk about and, and Calliope's relationship with Maka and what's magical in the world and what do you, how do you deal with that? Next time... Chapter 19, one chapter from the end, probably the last, I don't know, last recording, maybe not the last recording, I don't know. We got the big showdown with Fagos and Josh, he's back, causing trouble, like those trouble-causing guys that cause trouble when they're ghosts. So, there we go. See you next time. <laughs>